Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Franklin Lewis, a news writer with the Daily Emerald. Welcome to Season 3 of Spotlight on Science. In this series, members of the University of Oregon science community sit down and talk about their research and current events in their field in a language that we can all understand. Today, our guest is Dr. Barbara Mossberg, Honors College professor, poet, and radio show host. We discuss the complex relationship between writing and the sciences, what is broken about the way we teach science, the importance of keeping a journal, and much more. Let's get to it. We have the fabulous Dr. Barbara Mossberg, more well-known as Dr. B., um, thanks again for joining us today. I'm delighted. We, we have a fabulous, fabulous show today because this is, I think, a, kind of different from what we normally do. Um, you know, usually we have uh-huh. like kind of really sciencey guests on, but you know, you're more of a writer and a poet. Um, but I think the important thing that we want to get across today is that the intersection of science and poetry, which you are very yes. well versed on. I so, call it elation equation. Yes, and yes. now explain that. And you've got and you've got some science here. Oh, you've I got do. books. You've done more prep than I have so far. Oh, I mean, it is well. I well <laughs> in absurd. that sense, my prep is about four decades. No, five, <laughs> maybe six, six decades of prep because this is the question: What is the relationship between science and poetry, or how we describe and engage the world? So, for example, when we had the March for Science, I had to make a beautiful sign out of, I think it was a pizza box, but it says Poets for Science. And on the other side, it says equals MC squared is a poem. And that's where I get equation, elation, that the act, the imaginative, cognitive act of perceiving, of discerning that things that don't look remotely connected not only are related, but actually are the same thing. That E equals MC squared, why do we think that Einstein is a genius? It's because of the equal sign in E equals MC squared. It is that capacity to see that this is that. And what is that? That is a metaphor. And that is what poets do. They see that one thing is in terms of another, and that is a miracle of cognition. And I think one of the the biggest things that you've shown me and you've shown many others, too, is how, I mean, oftentimes these genius scientific minds of our day are even... They're, they're not only reading poetry, they're engaging with it. Sometimes they write their own poetry. They're learning musical yes. instruments. Yes. Um, why is it important for scientists to engage with things that are outside of maybe their normal, um, their normal academic bubble? I think, Frankie, that's such an important question. And for me, the way I would think about an answer for that is how scientists that we have respected and admired for thousands of years and in our own time, what were the experiences that they had that gave them that ability to conceive 
new thoughts to do innovation and discovery and invention. And when we look at that history, as you said, they are, are writing poems, they're reading literature, they are playing music, and they are engaging in the spheres of the brain that enable them to discern pattern and relation. And I think that that experience in these other fields that we think of as the creative arts mm, yeah. um, develops their own capacity to be creative. And yeah. I think at the end of the day, the deep structure of genius mm. is creativity. Yeah. And it's in, you can't really separate what the scientist and the poet did. They're both discovering and expressing miraculous, amazing yeah. truth like you need about be, our world. You need to be creative in all fields, not just yes. the sciences or just the arts. I mean, you need to be, it's, it's applicable everywhere. So it makes sense that, you, that you'd see kind of these genius thinkers be engaging with many different sources. I think yeah. you mentioned um, like Einstein in particular yeah. would engage with specific music and even learned instruments. Right. Could you talk a bit yes. to that? Yes. Well, um, actually, Einstein wanted to be a violinist. And he ultimately decided that he could not be a great violinist. And so he went to physics. Mm. But in a certain sense, you could say that the violin and physics are very much the same thing. And what he would do when he had a problem, he would go into a room and he would play the violin for hours, sometimes days, and he would come out with a solution. And there is a story about Einstein that, that I really think is probably important here, uh, that your questions, which I was so excited by, Frankie, when, when you gave me these questions for why and how should we educate scientists and poets? We'll get there. All right. Well, <laughs> a woman came up to Einstein and she said, I want my son to grow up to be Einstein. So, of course, she's using a metaphor right there. I want him to be Einstein. What kind of education should I give him? What did you study? And he said, fairy tales. And she goes, ho, 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 oh, Mr. Einstein, yeah. that's very witty, but I, I'm serious. Yeah. And he said, fairy tales. And she said, okay, Mr. Einstein, fairy tales, but after fairy tales, then what? And he said, more fairy tales. <laughs> and so we could step back from that and say, what did he mean? And if we think about fairy tales as a creative explanation and a metaphoric way of describing human truth, our challenges as human beings, our struggles to get along with each other, to make it in this world, to navigate what looks like unknown and fearsome territory, the kind of courage that you have to have to go into dark places and unknown places, and not only not to know, but to be unknown. That's the realm of fairy tales. And he is saying that that is the realm that the scientist right, must right. navigate to go into areas of unknowing. Right. 
that are even, fraught. Sometimes even predicting the science before it happens in a Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. Like Jules Verne was a big you know, proponent of that. He'd write all these stories and they had you know, higher balloons and, and like time travel and all these different things that weren't even exist. And then would um, these inventions would pop up many years later. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, yeah, you already um, prompted it yourself, but one of my key questions is um, what should we fix about the way we teach science? Um, and you're coming at this, you know, from your writing perspective and your poetic perspective. Well, I, or maybe, I think, maybe yeah. there's nothing broken. Well, I think, again, from the point of view that nothing is broken, we can look at what scientific discoveries and inventions that that we are so grateful for and admire so much, how did they come about? So it's not a matter of what can we fix, but from a scientific point of view, what can we replicate? What can mm. we do? What we, can we learn? It's just logical. Yes. And if we look at the curriculum and the pedagogy, if you will, of what the scientists um, experienced, that gives us a really good way to affirm uh, that kind of learning, which from my point of view then is liberal arts, it's integrating arts and science. Yeah. And they are very explicit about it. And thinking of our time to talk to each other today, yeah. I, um, I pulled up two quotes from John Steinbeck that are almost identical to Einstein. Yeah. So here you have a writer who got the Nobel Prize, is considered one of the greatest American writers ever, and yeah. you have a scientist. And John Steinbeck, as it turns out, has a degree from Stanford in marine biology. And he's hanging out with Ed Ricketts, who is one of the most famous marine biologists who wrote Between Pacific Tides. They are hanging out together in a shack on Cannery Row in Monterey with Joseph Campbell, the mythologist who wrote Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah. They are all about marine biology and ecology, mm. but Ed Ricketts is trained on Shakespeare. Yeah, they're all coming at it with, from different yeah. angles. Yeah. So Ricketts is trained on Shakespeare, and here is Steinbeck, a marine biologist who's using writing, and he says... When you collect marine animals, there are certain flatworms so delicate they are almost impossible to catch hold for they will break and tatter under your touch. You must let them ooze and crawl of their own will onto a knife blade and lift them gently into your bottle of seawater. And perhaps that might be the way to write this book, to open the page and let the stories crawl in by themselves. So we actually thought that his act of writing was informed by his own training in marine Biology. Yeah, you can totally see that. And, and I love that. And then he said, um, and this is from the uh, Sea of Cortez. It is a strange thing that most of the feeling we call religious, most of the mystical outcrying, which is one of the most prized and used and desired reactions of our species, is really the understanding and attempt to say that man is related to the whole thing, related inextricably to all reality, known and unknowable. This is a simple thing to say, but the profound feeling of it made a Jesus, a St. Augustine, a St. Francis, a Roger Bacon, a Charles Darwin, and an Einstein. Mm -hmm. Each of them, in his own tempo and with his own voice, discovered and reaffirmed with astonishment the knowledge that all things are one thing 
and that one thing is all things, plankton, mm-hmm. a shimmering phosphorescence on the sea and the spinning planets in an expanding universe, all bound together by the elastic string of time. It is advisable to look from the tide pool to the stars and then back to the tide pool again. Mm. And I think about John Muir, who was a botanist and a geologist, famous around the world. He's known as an ecologist and the founder of the National Parks. What was his training? His training was Rabbi Burns, the Scottish poet. It was Hmm. Shakespeare, it was Homer, it was Coleridge, it was Wordsworth, it was Emerson, it was Thoreau. And so he wrote as a scientist, making people see the world and making a scientific case for why we should value it. The same with Thoreau. Was he a scientist? Was he a writer? And I think at the end of the day, Einstein and Steinbeck and Muir and Thoreau and Richard Feynman, you know what they would say? They would say, I'm not a writer. I'm not a scientist. It is inextricable. I am both. Nah. I cannot be who I am and do what I do without this fundamental, yeah. inextricable work. Yeah. And my follow-up, I can probably already bet what your answer is going to be, but what should we fix about teaching creative writing? Mm. Or maybe creative writing is not even the best word to describe it. Oh, that's interesting. Because in a sense, we could say, ideally, all writing is creative. Is creative, exactly. Because, <laughs> you know, it's it's describing something in a way that yeah. has never been described before. Um, like maybe science way. writing should be more creative, and that's what we're missing. Maybe, maybe because when it is, when it is infused with literature, like John Muir, it changes the whole country's yeah. mind. When he was writing, we were cutting down all the original old growth forests, and he changed our minds so that we started preserving wilderness. Right. That was a huge transformation. Uh, the first time really in the history of, of the earth and that's, that we did that. That's difficult sometimes that the emotion is sometimes difficult to get through. And especially when you're writing these kind of very strict and stringent scientific papers that you have to get all the data yes. first and you have to get your facts straight and you have to have your very specific discussion. And there's no, there's no, they don't give you room for kind of creativeness or, or kind of um, artistic touch while you're Ooh. writing. Well, what, what, the way Muir said it was making people care. Yeah, exactly. He says, I, I want people to care because if they care, then they will want to save it. Right. And and I guess I would say that with teaching writing for any any discipline, I tell people and they say, oh, well, I want to be a poet. Okay. And one of my favorite poets is E.E. Cummings. He was a physics major. Mm. And I think that's the point. I say take physics and astronomy and biology and geology take everything because that is going to make your work sing and you're going to be able to make those metaphors and to connect uh, with the way that people know themselves and know the world so you will be understood. And as a scientist, you want to be understood in terms of public policy, in terms of people being able to use your research Mm -hmm. and to take it to heart and to make it truly applicable. And useful. Yeah. And I think the the applicable and usefulness, I mean, that's what's I think really focused on, right? It's like they they yes. like the practicality of all this research. That's like that's what's kind of drawn to. But again, I think, yeah, that creative 
touch is, is, is lost. And sometimes I think that's what it draws some people away from the sciences is that there's, it's kind of, it's so rigid. It's so boring. Like when the stuff isn't boring, like this is what, you yeah. know, this is all, it's the cutting edge. It's, you know, it shapes the way we think about the world and, and it, we're literally discovering how we think about the world and how the world works. Well, I think that's so eloquent. And Einstein, so we think, okay, he's, he's, he's a scientist, but he said, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. We experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from the prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. We shall require a substantially new manner of thinking if humanity is to survive. Mm. So what you were saying, Frankie, is, you know, the need to put perhaps uh, something into how we do science and how we express our knowledge of the world that makes people understand it and value it and mm. care for each other and the earth. And mm. Einstein felt that our survival was at stake, and mm. he felt the end of all knowledge equals MC squared. If that's true, if everything is all related and one whole, as Steinbeck says, as Einstein says, that means we're each other. And that includes all species, every kind of thing. And so he ended up saying that what we need, the result of scientific knowledge, is the need for kindness mm. and empathy and love. And he became an advocate for peace and for humanities and liberal arts education. And he felt that that had to go hand in glove with any kind of science in that kind of wisdom that you were talking about. How can we express the world to make us all feel that we have so much at stake in what the scientist yeah. is producing? Yeah. I mean, I could see him coming up with that during the whole like atom bomb discovery. And I'm, you know, I, I've, yeah. I've heard a bunch of stories coming out about that. And then they signed their petition that's saying, like, you know, we, we created this we do not endorse it. Basically, don't ever use it um, because they realized during that time <laughs> yeah. when they were creating this this weapon of mass destruction, they, they kind of realized, like, wow, this, you know, if, if this is what happens if if knowledge kind of is taken out of context and used for the, the wrong reasons. And um, I think it was Fermi. I can't remember if it, who exactly came up with it, but he was the first to come up with the theory that the reason we haven't gotten seen alien life yet or we hadn't discovered it is because civilizations become kind of too smart for their own good and like wipe themselves out. And so that's why we haven't mm. like expand. You haven't seen a civilization like expand in the universe and it puts it in perspective. And I think that's, you know, one thing we could talk about too, is the putting it in perspective. That's what literature and, and oh. the liberal arts kind of helps you, helps you do in a lot of cases oh. is whatever you're working on. It kind of puts it in perspective of, yeah. of other things. The whole, I, mm -hmm. you made me just uh, think of, Ray Bradbury in the Martian Chronicles. Mm. And he has a story where astronauts go to Mars and it's 
absolutely fantastic, and there is so much to see in alien yeah. life and so on, but they can't see it. All they can see when they look are fast food stands and parking lots. <laughs> and that idea that we bring, I mean, Einstein was talking about the prison of our thinking, that we bring with us a limited and limiting vision if we don't, as you say, yeah. have this perspective of the whole and we don't open our minds. And in a way, the poet, what the poet contributes to creative and innovative science and discovering science is this idea that we break down what is known and we try to see it in a new way. Mm. I'm not going to write a poem about a tree if I'm thinking that, if I'm looking at a tree and beholding it in the same way that it's always been seen. Mm -hmm. I'm moved to write about it because all of a sudden I'm excited yeah. by this new way of seeing it and expressing it. And in a way, that's what science is doing. It's breaking down what we thought we knew, the earth is flat, you know, yeah. and we're, we're coming up with a new way. Yeah. And I think you know, the, the whole earth is flat thing that, I don't know if you heard that, that came back. <laughs> yeah. Let's not go down that road. Um, um, let's pivot a little bit to um, your own career a bit, right. um, which is, right. I mean, it's still very much tied to what we're talking about. Um, okay. Kind of when did you know you, I mean, would you call yourself an, an eco poet? Like, how would you, hmm. what is your title? Basically, it's hard to introduce you because I don't know what to call <laughs> it. Like, That's what my mother, yeah. you know, when my mother when she wanted to excuse something that she called harebrained that I did, she goes, my daughter's <laughs> a poet. Yeah. And, and that word was supposed to, you know, yeah. explain how I was doing things differently. Yeah. I feel that I'm an encourager of ourselves and I'm encouraging our gift, our appreciation and gratitude for the gift of consciousness of living on earth with each other. Mm. And so I think that it's all connected, teaching and writing and performing, acting, all of those ways. I've been writing. Yeah. You had asked me, when did I know I was a writer? I've yeah. never thought of myself as a writer, but I've been writing well, as got, long I mean, as- You've got this book that you're in front of us, oh. and clearly you've written something. Like <laughs> No, I, I write all the time, but I think that that's just a way of being. And- I was writing in elementary school. Elementary school, there was a poem of mine. My cat, Sugar Plum, was on the superintendent's desk. I was sending my poems to newspapers. And um, in sixth grade, I had a poem published in the newspaper. I was paid $2 for it. Wow. Which is the that's, most I've ever been paid, I think, for any of my poems. I was going to say. <laughs> you know, that's the highest paid that, that I am. And usually I think, oh, okay, how much can I pay and you? And back then, $2 yes. is, I mean, that's, that you're was, living large at that, that point. That yeah. was a lot. Yeah. But any, So I've been writing really since I, since I learned how to write and writing poetry and stories and essays yeah. and it's the way I am. Yeah. I've always kept a journal. When I was president of a college, I was still, I was writing poetry. I was incorporating poetry into my address to my various communities and my board. Um, so it's, it's just a way that I experience the world. That's something you touched on the, your journal too. That's yeah. something that, you know, when, you know, in talking to you, I've 
tried to start keeping a journal and it's it's one of those activities that I think is we don't really talk about much any, anymore. I think people used to keep journals a lot more frequently. Yes. Um, but they're kind of falling off the the wayside a bit. Talk a little bit about the journals cuz that's something you are really big on and anyone who talks yes. to you you will tell them to keep <laughs> I, a journal. <laughs> I I yes I do. Yeah. And I'm not the first because I'm yeah. really thinking that John Muir made such good use of his journals but he was told to keep a journal by a professor in college. And he did, and he transformed those journals into letters to the editor and into essays that fell into the president's and Congress hands and so on. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that a journal is so important, and you've done such tremendous thinking on journals, so I'm mm -hmm. excited by that. But what I say to people is if you take a, if you keep a journal, it's not a matter of documenting what you're doing or even what you're thinking. But if you start keeping a journal in any entry, my my theory is that you will end up discovering what you have to say hmm. and you will surprise yourself that it is a way of knowing in a new way what's in you that you never would have known what you think and what you could think if you hadn't been writing it. So I feel that a journal generates thinking and doesn't just record it. Yeah. Did you keep a journal in college and all the way pretty much? Always. Always. And had it, has it changed forms? Does it always look the same? Is it? Oh, that that's such a good question. My journals are whatever book that I bought at the moment. They are big. Some of them are bound. Okay. Some of them are paper. They take every form. Mm -hmm. And if I write other things, if I don't have my journal with me, then I will put it in. But I have kept journals more or less continuously since I've been about 11. Yeah. And I'm not alone in that because when I, when I go to research scientists or writers or uh, leaders – I'm looking at uh, Martin Luther King or Gandhi. They're all keeping journals. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it's a lab. It's a studio. It's a way to center yourself. It's a meditation. And I think that your thinking that you've been doing on the journal is really yeah. important and exciting you know, I, I save this question for, um, and, you know, what she's referring to is we, um, you know, I know you from the study abroad trip and the, the honors college. This is a kind of final question here. I think I, it's a question that I ask um, a lot of different people, but I, I always like the answers I get. What's, what's a question that someone has never asked you that you wished someone would ask? Okay, so I'm going to think about that. And give a plug for the Honors College yeah. and and our course while yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. Okay. So the course that we took together in Dublin, Oxford, London, and Paris has two parts. Travel is transformational learning, which is the idea that in order to come up with new thoughts, we travel. Mm -hmm. We leave a way of knowing and we experience other and we experience ourselves as other, which is transformational. And it's geography and it's culture and it's language and it's field and revolutionary imagination. Mm 
And again, it's getting inside what we call genius and thinking of new thoughts. So, mm. And it was wonderful to have yeah. you and thinking about science and thinking about how we write about it and express it. Because it seems to me that to save our world that we, as Einstein said, we have to come up with a way of expressing and articulating it so that people care enough to want to save it. Mm. So maybe a question that I haven't been asked is, how could we save the world, mm. right? And I guess I would go back to the story of the Sphinx, right, which is thousands and thousands of years old. It was referenced by Sophocles in the 400s BC mm. in Oedipus. And there's a town and people want to get into the town. And if you want to, there's a test, and it's sort of like a college. If you want to go to law school, you take the LSAT or yep. med school yep. MCAT, right? But there's only one question to get into the community of Thebes, and that's a riddle. It's a poem. It's a metaphor. And it's, it's a description of human development in terms of how the sun moves on the earth. Yep. And it's what walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs in the afternoon. And the interesting thing about that is that the answer is the human being, because in our infancy, we're crawling. Right. In our right. adults, we're erect on two legs yes. with Advil, and then we have a cane <laughs> in the afternoon. We're walking. But nobody could recognize this description of the human development yeah. on Earth in terms of a day. Mm -hmm. So we did not have a poetic literacy. We did not have the ability to conceive metaphor. We could not recognize our own experience in the world. And the interesting thing is that nobody could answer this question, right? And if you couldn't answer it, the Sphinx was a pretty hard grader. Yeah. It was pretty strict. You couldn't take a Kaplan test. No. no, you were killed. Yeah. Okay? So the bodies are piling up. Can't retake up. the course either. You can't yeah. retake it. You can't show up. So yeah. the bodies are piling up outside Thebes. And the idea is that if you don't know... A metaphoric knowledge or literacy, if you can't read what you see and think here as a scientist, what am I seeing here? You can't diagnose it. You are not only not fit to live with in the community, which needs you to be able to have an empathic knowledge to understand that other is yourself because mm -hmm. we live from the inside out. We don't see ourselves. We only see each other. Right, right. You aren't fit to live with. We can't have you. You don't have an em empathic knowledge. You aren't fit to live at all. Mm. And it is a fatal ignorance. So what can we do to save the world? We can teach everybody how to read and to write poetry and metaphor and in the process do science because that is what science is doing. And we will think of the world as a miracle and amazing. And so I would end with E.E. E. Cummings, a physicist who wrote a sonnet. And he said, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and this blue true dream of sky and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. That's just the first stanza. But that sense of amazement 
at looking at the world through a physicist's eyes. It's amazing. And Einstein said you can look at the world in two ways. You can say nothing is a miracle or everything's a miracle. Right. And if you think it's a miracle, you're going to treat it with reverence and respect and love. Well, I almost feel bad speaking after that. Thank you again for <laughs> for coming on. It was really fun. And I, I think there's a it was a great conversation. Thank you. I loved I loved having this. I, I can't think of anything more important or more wonderful to be talking about today. Thank you again. Thank you. This is our second episode of season three of Spotlight on Science. Thanks again to Dr. B for being our guest today. I'm Franklin Lewis. If you'd like to recommend a member of the UO Science community for us to interview, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or at thedailyemerald.com. The music in this episode is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas, which we found on freemusicarchive.org. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and listen to these episodes right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thanks for listening.